0: Hi everybody, I'm Wendy Murdoch, and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars during the pandemic, mostly to entertain myself, learn a little, and get a chance to chat with my friends. Since we can't travel around, I don't get to see some of the people that I know so well, and one of my favorite people is my guest today. Um, so this is just a great way to kind of get together with friends, have a little conversation, and you know, bring you along on a, on a little journey where we talk about really interesting topics that relate to our horses. Today, my guest is Dr. Hillary Clayton. I'm so pleased to have you today, Dr. Clayton. Um,
1: I'm so pleased to be here.
0: Um, we met in 1999, uh, I believe, um, when we did the EQUICAN course at uh, Michigan State University together. And that was a crazy course because yeah. yeah. we had Susan Harris, Dr. Joyce Harmon, Andy Foster, you were there, my friend Allie Thurston. And um, we spent a lot of time fooling around and having a great time and learning about anatomy. And it was uh, really, really fun. And so that's where we first met, although I had known of you for quite a while from Dr. Harmon and Joyce. Um, but for my guests today who might not know your background, Hillary, can you just kind of give us a, a tiki tour of of you know how you wound up
1: where you are today? In your garden. Okay. Well, I'm originally English. I'm a veterinarian by training. Um, but I worked most of my professional career in academia. I practiced for a couple of years and then went back to school and did a PhD and never got out again. Um, my specialty has been in equine biomechanics, locomotor biomechanics. But also, as the years went by and we got more technology available, I got interested in the rider, the saddle, the tack, and all that kind of thing that suddenly, we had equipment and we were able to measure things, so why not answer some of the burning questions that I'd been asking for a long time? And that's some of what I'm going to share with you today. Yeah, and I I can remember way back when when we put a saddle on a hay
0: bale, because. Yeah, I, I don't know what piece, of code, but I think we had dots on and we were playing with dots and sitting on hay bales on a saddle and you were filming something. So we've had a few play dates with, together at MSU, which were really, really fun. And I used to organize courses for people. and We'd come to uh, your lab, the McPhail Center, and do four-day courses on the biomechanics of the horse, which were fabulous. Uh, sadly, those ended in 2008 when the economy tanked and you never quite got back there. And then you retired.
1: Yeah. Which is... I, haven't, I haven't really retired. I've just retired from getting a, a regular salary, which is very sad. Uh, <laughs> but I still do a lot of research, and, and I kind of do it on my own time, in my own place, and it's pretty darn nice. And you're still riding. Oh, still riding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you Once have... I can. Yeah, you have...
0: Uh, one or two horses now. I know you have one. I have two Lusitanos. Okay. Donzi and? Dagio. And I guess I don't really know Daggio. No, you probably don't. I think I've met him. Um, so, So <laughs> it's really great because not only are you in the research side of it, you're also in the riding side. So you get to see the practical application of everything that you're working on, which I think is super unique and really important so that you stay in touch with what the rest of us are trying to do because you're struggling with it right along with us.
1: Yes, I struggle just as much as anybody
0: else. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you've also had some pretty serious injuries that you've had to recover from, and I know, you know I, that's not uncommon for riders. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, even though you are an incredible researcher and you've got this amazing background, you're still one of us. You're still out there. Oh, dealing- I'm
1: one of you, yes, yes, yes. <laughs>
0: The, the daily struggles of keeping our horses going, which I'm not doing a good job of right now, and um, and just trying to improve in every way we can.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a life's work, better enjoy the journey.
0: Yeah, so today you're gonna to talk to us about bits and bridles, and I'm so excited about this, because we've had a number of webinars where we've talked about um, the hyoid bone with Jillian Kreinbring, and equisomas come in, and they've shown us some anatomy, and, um, We've had different talks about vagus nerve, and I've discovered that that's, you know, kind of all of this stuff kind of relates together because it's all surrounding around the head. So, you know, I think this is a really timely topic to bring in the equipment piece of it and how that's going to influence our horses,
1: good or bad. Well, those sound like very sophisticated topics. Mine is not nearly so sophisticated. (laughs) Yours (laughs) is much more practical and and applied and very, very important.
0: So, I'll just let you go ahead and take the screen and. and, um, Okay, well,
1: I'm going to put up a different screen here. You don't have to look at me the whole time. Uh, There we go. So do you see that full screen now?
0: Yes, we do. It's awesome.
1: Okay. So when when Wendy asked me to do this topic, I said, yeah, that would be great. Um, And then I think it was yesterday or two days ago, she shared with me a question that had already come in. And I was talking to her yesterday and said, you know, I have a PowerPoint and there's a perfect slide in there to answer this question. So then she said, PowerPoint, PowerPoint. (laughs) And here we are. This is the PowerPoint. Now, I prepared this originally for the USDF um, annual convention last year. So it was prepared with dressage people in mind. Um, But, you know, I think that what's in it, the information is pretty applicable across the board. Just if I say something that relates to the rules, then it's specifically the USEF dressage rules. And if you're competing in a different discipline, then, you know, check the rules. Don't take it that these apply to everything. So here's the um, first slide. And this is indeed my, one of my Lusitanos, the one I ride, that's Donzie. And when we think about, I'm gonna start with bridles and then go on to bits later. Um, when we think about bridles, there have been a lot of changes recently. Manufacturers are giving us all kinds of newly designed bridles that are aimed to be more comfortable and more effective than the tack that we've had before. You know, when I started riding 60 odd years ago, each horse had one saddle, one bridle. You might have shared it with a few other horses. And, you know, you really didn't pay any attention much to the fit or the comfort. It was just a, a piece of equipment that you used. But what we're seeing now is that there's much more attention being paid to the comfort of both the horse and the rider. And I think that's a, you know, an excellent thing. So these anatomical bridles are being designed to alleviate pressure on parts of the head that are particularly likely to be painful, like the bones, the vessels, and the nerves. And these three pictures are showing some of the areas that we're trying to avoid. So on the left, the skull, I've got a circle around the horse's temporomandibular joint, or TMJ, and that's the joint where the mandible... Articulates with the skull. So that's the joint that allows the horse to open and close his mouth. And obviously, we don't want pressure over that joint because it's not only important for movement, it's also important for proprioception, the horse's whole sort of perception of the world and how he's moving. And then the blue line that's going to the left, that's following the line of the horse's facial crest. And that's a, a prominent a ridge of bone that we don't want to have the tack crossing over so we want our noseband to fit below that facial crest for example now the picture in the middle is showing the vessels and the picture on the right is showing the nerves and the circles just below the horse's ear i don't think can you see that pointer yep it works we can. Oh, yeah excellent excellent <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, this little pointy bit here, that's the top of the horse's pole, so you can imagine that his ears are sort of up here somewhere. Just below the horse's ears is an area where a whole lot of cranial nerves are going out and into the horse's brain, and also there's a lot of vessels in that area. And we've learned from some studies that I'm going to talk about again later that that's actually quite a sensitive area. And that's an area where we don't want to have a lot of pressure. And then one more area outlined here in blue, maybe see some nerves coming out here. This is called the infraorbital foramen. And it's an exit site for many of the nerves um, of the, the head. And we think this nerve may also be involved in head shaking. So that's just showing you some of the anatomical structures that we're concerned about when we look at how the bridle fits. So one of the problems that we have these days is that people have a tendency to tighten up certain parts of the bridle too much. So I was looking through the human literature to try and find some condition in people that was that um, was, was a problem that was caused by too much pressure on the, the nerves or the vessels or you know, some part of the head. And this is a condition called supraorbital neuralgia. So it means supraorbital means above the eye and neuralgia is a type of nerve pain. So it's a condition that happens in swimmers and it happens because they wear tight goggles that put pressure on some of these nerves that you can see in the picture on the right. And then after they've been swimming and wearing the goggles, they get a headache. So um, I thought maybe there are lessons to be learned about how the swimmers tackle this problem. And solutions that they have are to wear goggles with softer rubber, to loosen the strap that's holding the goggles in place, or to change the goggles periodically so that they put pressure maybe on a slightly different place so to shift things around. Like if you've been wearing a pair of shoes for too long and your feet hurt, you put on a different pair of shoes and they might still hurt, but they hurt in a different place. So it's it's better for a while. But I think there are some rather important lessons here. So wearing goggles with softer rubber, how about if we have tack that's putting pressure maybe on the bone of the horse's face, we can have it padded. But the thing about this padding is that a lot of bridles have very sort of firm padding. You know, when you touch it, it feels firm. It doesn't give what we really want is very soft compressible padding so that that padding can conform to the shape of the, lumps and bumps on the horse's head. So soft padding is going to be our friend. Now, loosening the strap is kind of a no brainer. Tight nose bands are a huge topic at the moment and we'll come back to that as well. But simply, you know, loosening some of the straps on the bridle can sometimes take pressure off the sensitive structures. And then there's this idea of changing goggles to avoid repeatedly stimulating the same area. Well, how about you alternate days in your snaffle bridle and your double bridle? Or you have two different, slightly differently fitting snaffle bridles. Something like that, just so that you're not doing same thing every day.
0: Hilary, do you have something that's near your mic because suddenly you've got a little bit fuzzy? I don't know if it's a piece of paper or maybe it's your sleeve.
1: Maybe I was ah. le- is that better? Yeah, I think so. Or maybe I was leaning on it or something. Okay, Okay. well just tell me if I go fuzzy, I'll bring the thing a bit closer too. Okay, okay. so let's go through the parts of the bridal. And if there are questions, just fire them off to Wendy and you can shout up when I stop for breath or something.
0: <laughs> yep, just put them in the chat
1: or in the Q&A, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so The crown piece of the bridle, it's going over the top of the horse's head and it's going to carry the whole weight of the bridle and put that weight onto the horse's pole. So here we can see the crown piece fitting across the pole. It fits just behind that little knobby bony bit I showed you on the previous pictures. Now, according to basic physical principles, If you've got a certain amount of force, then the force is distributed better if we have a wider area distributed over. So a fairly narrow headpiece like this could be improved by having a wider headpiece. That's the first thing. A wide headpiece is quite good. Next thing is that having some some of that soft padding we talked about on top of the horse's head is quite nice. And here's one with fairly thick and soft padding. And then the other thing we've learned in recent years is that if you have it just a very straight um, crown piece, headpiece, then it tends to run over the back of the cartilage of the horse's ear. And if we sort of scallop out the shape of the headpiece, so that it goes around the horse's ear, then that's more comfortable. Some horses don't bother, but for some horses, it's a source of irritation, a good reason to shake their head. So majority of bridles you find now will have a, an area to allow extra space for the horse's ear. But, and there's always a but here, Um, Not all horses are exactly the same shape. So you really need to try on this headpiece and make sure that the shaping fits the shape of your horse's head and and your horse's ears. Now, here I'm coming on to the US dressage rules. We have a, a rule that the crown piece of the bridle has to fit in front of the first cervical vertebra. Now, the reason for that is that if the crown piece fits further back over the vertebrae, then it could perhaps affect um, the action of the joint that's right at the pole, so the atlanto-occipital joint. And that's the joint that kind of hinges to allow the horse's head to go in front of, on or behind, the vertical. So if you are looking at different headpieces, we allow a headpiece that extends further forward on top of the horse's um, pole region, but not too much further back. So the bridle shown here, this one would be okay. Now, another word while I'm looking at this, there was a bridle, I can't remember the name of it, that was actually in two pieces with just straps going across the top, the very middle part of the pole, with the idea of unloading the structures that are running up the middle of the neck um, to the horse's head. And that was a really good idea. But it didn't always work. And the problem was doing that, Hillary, um, that it, it takes off pressure in the middle of the pole, but it puts more pressure at the sides, forces and pressure never go away. They just move to a different place. And some horses apparently really dislike this extra pressure at the side, which would be sort of in this area here. And in those horses, they would go into sort of head-shaking frenzies. So, you know, always be aware that what works for one horse might not work for every horse. Now this bridle, clearly has the headpiece way behind the first cervical vertebra. So this bridle would not be legal enough on its own uh, in dressage in the US.
0: And that's a really rather interesting, I have never seen one quite like that.
1: Yeah, and I've actually seen people use it um, in Europe. The other thing about this bridle that I could point out to you See this strap here? Yep. Well, it comes down here and crosses to the other side. And the one from the other side comes and crosses over here, which is this, this one. So right. it's a like a cross under thing. And I think you can see that the horse's cheek is bulging out around it. People do this up quite tight, so it's also a rather coercive um, type of a nose band. So there's really more than one reason why we would disallow that one.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I can see that. Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Um, so going back to what I said about there is pressure in this region underneath, right underneath the ear, where we have a lot of vessels and nerves exiting and entering the skull and winding around the facial canal. the way that it was realized how much pressure can be on this area was by using this little blue shiny thing is actually a very small pressure mat. And there was research done with one of these little pressure mats put underneath the um, crown piece of the bridle and extending the sort of down over this area. And the pressure measurements showed that there was high pressure in the middle of the pole as you might expect but also in this area below the ears and the people who did that research then went ahead and designed a bridle that would avoid that pressure. So here's the sort of diagram of the bridle and what they've done is put very soft foam um, rectangular pieces on each side just above where the high pressure area is. Right, so just above here is that foam piece, and very annoying. here it is on the actual horse, and you can see how it fits the contour of the horse's head, and then it stops right here, and just leaves like a, an empty space, a little gap um, underneath the cheek piece, and that unloads this sensitive area of the horse's head.
0: So Hillary, is that sensitive area where the
1: uh, brow band comes in, basically? Yes, it's very close to where the brow band comes in, and that may be in a little part of this problem that because the brow band is going around the cheek piece, it pushes in, if you like, into that area. Well, and, and you, that's a good reason for having a brow band that fits a little yeah. bit lower down. Yeah. But also, you see
0: many horses with brow bands that are too tight they're not wide enough for their their heads and that yes yeah okay leads right in
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes and that's a you know a really good point the brow band needs to be wide enough I think that's on the the next slide but so a brow band is where you can be your uh, creative self and at least in dressage you can have multiple colors you can have metal and beads and crystals and diamonds if you want Um, but i'm much more concerned with the functionality so yes the brow band must be long enough that it's not pulling forward at the ears and also low enough like you just said wendy so that it's not sort of pushing on that little tender spot um, just below the horse's ears. So, yeah, I'll pull it down. My thing gone. You now here's the bottom of the ear, and you can see this one's displaced but down by at least about an inch, and this one is fairly low too. This one we would say is rather high. We'd like to see it a little bit lower, but it's very pretty pink.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, and in the Western bridles, you'll see a lot of conchos and kind of a lot of uh, bling there, Western bling, right there with the, on the mm-hmm. brow band. But um, the fit is so important. And if some people kind of get distracted by the bling and miss the fit.
1: Yes. Yes. And like I said, I'm all about function. I don't mind bling. I like bling, but <laughs> function first. <Right. sighs> no, the throat latch. Throat latch is supposed to keep the bridle on. It's maybe not terribly effective unless it's done up really tight like this one. But here's what happens when you have too loose of a throat latch. That's actually Mark Todd. Oh, wow. It last competition and his bridle fell off. <laughs> <laughs> he clearly thought that was quite funny. Yeah. Um, usually it happens uh, like at the halt, the starter, and usually at the end of the test and the horse is a bit hot and sweaty and the rider drops the reins and he puts his head down and shakes it a bit and, oops, off goes your bridle. Um, so, yes, we, we like to have something that will stop the bridle falling off over the horse's ears. But if it's adjusted too tightly, like the one on the right, then that can interfere with breathing and swallowing. That's a really tight um, brow band. The rule I was taught, always taught, was that you should get, well, how many was it? four fingers or something in at the side. Yeah. Now there is an alternative to a traditional throat latch. You can use a jowl strap instead, as long as that jowl strap fits right in this region here. So just more or less at the bottom of where the big cheekbone, um, cheekbone, cheek muscle curves around, that's about where it should fit. This is the Mecklen bridle, and it has a really nice fitting um, jowl strap that really holds the bridle in place as it should. On the other hand, if you have a bridle like this one that has two lower straps or two, what you might call chin straps, this one would not be legal. It would have to have either an extra strap as a jowl strap or um, a conventional throat latch. And when you look at this and sort of break it down, this is really just like a caverson noseband. There's the front part and there's the back part. It just has a little curvy thing in the middle. And then this is a a flash noseband. So it's really not the same idea as having a jowl strap. And so you also pointed out there was a lot of
0: blood vessels in that area that if you, it seems to me the one on the right because it doesn't really have a throat latch or a gel strap, you'd have to make that pretty tight to keep it on.
1: Oh yeah, that would be very easy for that one to come off a film with the horse's ears, especially if he sort of rubbed the side of his face on his knee, poof, that one could be gone too. Yeah. Yeah, so you know, a lot of our rules, they seem a bit picky, but they really are designed for safety first. And so with the jowl
0: strap, is there? I I see that you're saying it has to be just in front of the the line of the cheekbone, but again, you'd have to be careful because there's a lot of, if it was a little bit lower, you'd be pressing on a lot of stuff again, right?
1: Yeah. Yes, and lower would be less effective. So So, yes, I think that's like the perfect place for a jowl strap. So we have a question from
0: someone who's asking about the Micklin bridle, and she says, can a horse open his mouth with the Micklin
1: bridle on. Okay, can I defer that for a minute? Because I'm going to talk about Micklin bridles later. Perfect. And if the question doesn't get answered, bring it up again. Okay. Okay, next part we're going to look at is the cheekpiece. piece. So cheekpiece's piece's job is to hold the bit in place and to transfer the tension from holding the bit in place up to the pole. Now, I like to adjust the bit so that it fits up just into the corners of the mouth like we can see over here. This one I know is too loose, too low, Um, and I know that because I can see the ring of the bit, the top part of it is falling away from the horse's face. If it were the correct adjustment, then that ring would be parallel to the face, not like that. when the bit hangs too low, horses get, some horses again, not all, um, get very fussy with their tongue. They don't like having the bit hanging down on the middle of their tongue. So um, either a bit that's too wide or a bit that's hanging too low can cause that problem.
0: Can you point out with your pointer where it's wide at the,
1: away from the face? Yes. So here at the straight part of the D-ring, it's close to the face. And then this whole part here is falling outwards.: And so
0: that I've always thought of it as there's two reasons why that would happen, and one was that the bit's too wide, and the other is that it's too low. Is that
1: right? Too narrow or too low.: Too narrow or too low. Because if it's too narrow, then it's pulled in closer to the. Oh way. yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay move yep. on to the next one. Yep. So the well, one in the middle is really too high, right? Um, pulling the horse's lips up to his ears and also that bit is probably a little bit wide. If it's coming out of the horse's mouth that much on either side then the bit is, is too wide. And again we're going to come back to bit fitting later. Okay because I know we're going to get a question about wrinkles. Well, I think this is about the correct amount of wrinkles. One, maybe two. Um, but remember that when you put on a noseband that fits below the bit, it helps to hold the bit in place, and sometimes you have to take up the cheek piece another hole after you've put the noseband on. Right. Okay. And so we got more so- questions about that, because this is the appropriate time to talk about
0: wrinkles. I I haven't seen any coming in, but you know, the wrinkle thing uh, in the Western world, and I know right now we're looking at dressage brows, but in the Western world, they don't want to see any wrinkles at all and think that any wrinkles are bad. So, I mean, what's But They're they're
1: not using a drop-type noseband, are they? They're not using a noseband at all, typically. And that, that does make something of a difference because If you put a drop nose band on with a bit fitted as you just said, then the bit would hang like this one on the left. And then you can't get a consistent contact on the mouth, which is not something you need for Western riding. But, you know, I would still offer the caution that some horses don't like the bit too low. And I know there was a movement for a while, it was with some of the natural horsemanship groups, to have the bit really low in the horse's mouth, which there's yeah, no I, law against it, but I don't well, think it's the most effective I
0: saw one that was so low that if I just put a little tension on the cheek pieces, it went below the lower incisors, meaning to the outside of the lower incisors, which I considered dangerous, um, yeah. right? But so someone's asking this, that they say it seems to me that there are the same number of wrinkles in the too high and the just right pictures.
1: Okay. Well, if you look at the one that I'm saying is just right, the horse's lip immediately above the um, cannon of the bit is sort of pushing out. It's like an outward wrinkle. And then the skin goes in and then it's normal face. The one on the left, the opposite is happening. The horse's lip here is actually tucked right under this fold of skin that you can see. So you can't really count wrinkles on that one. I can see how it would look like one wrinkle, but it's a little bit different the way the skin has been kind of gathered up, if that makes any sense. And, and do the quality of the lips, in other words, horses have,
0: some horses have thin, some horses have thick, does, the, does that play in in terms of what we're going to see from the wrinkles?
1: Um, yeah, fatter lip. So have the wrinkles. <laughs> well, it just looks
0: like that, you know. So the horse it kind of a has center of the bit here, here, here the and middle. say that
1: when you, for me, if I adapt, if I adjusted the bit, and it was just like this, and the ring was parallel with the horse's face, and I didn't feel as if it was pulling the bit out of the horse's mouth. I think that's the other clue here: that the um, mouthpiece of the bit. Is being pulled right out of the horse's mouth. So it should be just sitting there, lightly supported by the noseband, not pulling the bit upwards, but not allowing the bit ring to hang outwards.
0: And so the noseband here is, in a way, supporting the bit into its position?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Okay. And I think that's
1: one of the most important functions of the noseband. So
0: in, a, in this case, with the, um, the drop on this flash, yeah. flash, thank you. I lost my word. So, so the flash there is really to support the bit, not to keep the horse's mouth closed. Ooh, I didn't exactly
1: say that. <laughs> I said one of the most important functions is to hold the bit in place. Okay. Um, and let's talk about keeping the mouth closed in a minute. Okay. okay. We're going to, we, we will get to that. And I know it's always tempting to want to know things now, but nope, it's, it's easier not- to explain when I have the right slides up. Yep. Now, this was the question that you can thank for having the PowerPoint presentation. So have you got the question there? I do. And it's from Callie Norton. And she
0: says, I have a question about positioning of the cheek, buckle, cheek piece bu- buckles on an English bridle. My OTTB has a fairly fine head, and while she needs a horse-sized bridle, the standard cheek pieces have to be fastened above her eyes near her ears to have the bit in the right position. This seems too sensitive an area to me, and it worries me more about her fly bon- when her fly bonnet adds bulk underneath the buckle area. Ideally, where should the cheek piece buckles rest? It occurs to me that I could replace the standard cheek pieces with a cob size if appropriate.
1: Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, Callie's actually answered it herself. But anyway, let's have a look at the hows and whys. So here's our horse's skull again with the circle around the area. This is really important. This is the TMJ, the joint. And then this is the area with the, the nerves and stuff. So in this horse in the middle, these two buckles are right at the TMJ. That little bit of bone there is this bone right here. Right. So those buckles are lying right over the joint and we don't like that. What we want to see is that these buckles are over the, the soft, fleshy muscle of the horse's cheek. Now, it's good if you have a buckle on each side and a lot more bridles now do have buckles on both sides so you're not sliding the strap back and forth. But you know, like Callie said, um, if the bridle doesn't fit, you can either buy a shorter cup size uh, cheek piece, or if you've got a, a good leather worker in your area, they can take the buckle end and remove the buckle and shorten it from that end, so that will then pull it down further down the horse's face, and that's a, you know a pretty easy fix for that.
0: Yeah. Um- We have another question that was kind of from the previous slides. I'm going to ask it and then you can maybe tell me whether it's appropriate or do it later. Um, Mm -hmm. How do we know when the bit is positioned well in reference to the teeth? Can we just use the lip wrinkles for that or do we essentially need to look inside the mouth?
1: If the bit is positioned like this, well, in fact, even this one, it's not going to touch the teeth. This one we might worry about it getting low enough to touch the canine teeth, or like you said, in some cases, even the incisors. Coming up, I've got some X-rays, and we'll be able to see a little bit better then how much um, how long the horse's bar actually is. Okay. Great.
0: And and if you go back one quick, I know this is not a, maybe not the appropriate time, but the you know, you often see these, these clips to hold the bit on the cheek pieces. And I just wonder how it is is a clip okay? Or is it better to have just a regular hook stud or buckle versus a clip?
1: Okay. I, the clip is okay, as long as it's nice and smooth, and there's no way that it's going to, you know, poke the horse. It's not my idea of what looks nicest. I mean, I'm a very traditional stud person. I don't even use buckles on mine, but <laughs> and, and, a, and a lot of that is what you grow up with. But you know, the one in the middle has a hook, makes it easy to take it apart, put it back together again. I, I don't have a quarrel with that, as I say, as long as it's you know, nice and smooth against the horse's face. Okay. It's aesthetics more than anything. Now, in um, dressage competitions, the flash noseband is the most common. cavison part, regardless of whether it's a flash or not, should be lower than the end of the facial crest. And I've just got an arrow on each of these for the end of the facial crest. Um, I was always taught that it should be like two centimeters or two fingers distance. I don't know that that's so important I think this one is just fine. The main thing is that the noseband isn't actually rubbing against the end of the facial crest. So you've got a little room for adjustment here depending on what flatters your horse's head. Um, now, one other thing, studies with little pressure mats have shown that if you have one of these, um, oh, Removable—that's the word I want. Removable flash attachments. So it has a strap that goes all the way around the noseband. That again can cause a focal pressure area. And you know, it seems like a very thin little strap, but remember, it's lying directly over the bone of the horse's nose. So better to have a flash noseband with a integrated um, piece on the caboson small thing but
0: well it's amazing how little things make a big difference especially around the face because we're so sensitive there
1: yeah yes and you know they don't have a lot of hair on their face and you get rubs and anyway moving on so noseband adjustment how should the noseband be adjusted well There's a principle in animal training called negative reinforcement. It's an unfortunate name because negative indicates that it's bad, but it's not. It's a perfectly valid method of training. What the negative refers to is that when the horse gives the correct response, you take away some kind of pressure or something that is mildly aversive to the horse. So... Um, you know, an, an easy example is that you teach the horse to move over, to move away from pressure, and as soon as the horse takes a step away, you take away the pressure. That's negative reinforcement, and it's you know it's a, a very good um, teaching learning tool for horses. There is a movement now towards positive reinforcement, which is giving the horse praise or a treat or adding something after you get the correct response. But when you're riding, of course, it's not always um, possible to do that. And in fact, I was reading a paper just yesterday about what kind of um, reward the horse prefers. Does he prefer the owner to give him a pat or a stroke, or does he prefer a treat? Well, every time they prefer a treat. <laughs> but obviously, that, that's not possible when you're riding along. So the way the noseband band at, so can, as we just, can we just can we just synopse that that when we're talking
0: about positive we're talking about adding something to and when we're talking negative we're talking taking away from yes and then you have um, positive and negative and then you have reinforcement and then on the other side there's another term well there's uh, punishment punishment that's it so you can add punishment or take away punishment or you can add. Uh, Because these always get so confusing for me, and I keep trying to come up with a simple, uh, you know.
1: Yeah, and like I say, this is, it's not an intuitive term. Right, that's why I struggle. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, so positive is adding, negative
0: is taking away, and then there's either... Yeah, you
1: add something they want, or you take away something they don't want. Okay, great, thank you. Okay, so if we have our noseband correctly adjusted it has just a little bit of slack in it when the horse's mouth is closed and then if the horse opens his mouth and opens it enough that the, the teeth are parted then the noseband should put pressure on the horse's nose and as soon as the horse closes his mouth the pressure goes away so it's a sort of you know self-inflicted pressure on the nose if you don't like it close your mouth and i think Most horses learn fairly quickly that, oh, I should keep my mouth closed and just gently chew the bit without actually, you know, widely opening the mouth like that horse in the middle. So that's my guideline as to why we choose a certain tightness for the nose band. the goal ought not to be to have the noseband so tight that it physically prevents the horse from opening his mouth, like the one there over on the right. And you can see very easily that that noseband is indenting the skin. Um, you know, that's one of the things I look for: that the noseband ought not to be indenting the skin. It's, it's just way too tight. You know, the other clue here is that the front of the cavesson is being pull down because this one is so tight it's just pulling the middle piece down
0: and so the the to just go back to that point for a minute because there's there's a bit a huge movement away from nosebands altogether but the downside of that for me is that when a horse is learning something if he opens his mouth then it's it, we're going to have to go all the way to the end range of that open mouth before we make contact to be able to communicate what it was we were asking. Whereas a nose band, if it just limits how much they can open, then we more quickly transfer that idea from, okay, escaping by opening the mouth to what is it that we need to do with the rest of our body.
1: Right. And you know, opening the mouth, that becomes head up and twisted and turned and like you say pretty soon you you can have lost all control right and
0: and so like you say it's it, it, for me it's like it creates a boundary at a certain point shouldn't lock the horse's jaw shut but creates a boundary so that the the purpose of the aid whatever it was gets more clearly through to the horse to decrease the amount of discomfort over time, because opening the jaw could be very discomforting to the horse, especially gaping it wide.
1: Yeah. Yes. So I I agree. I don't, well, for the type of riding I do, I want to use a noseband. I use it both as a training aid and as a safety feature. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right, and I think that that's kind of gotten, the safety feature, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's gotten lost.
1: Well, the safety feature is really what you were just saying, that it will prevent the horse from opening his mouth way too wide and twisting and turning. And it's, it, it's essentially a resistance to the action of the bit. But, you know, There are some horses that will resist any kind of work. And sometimes because there's another problem. Right. But even if there is, we don't want either the horse or the rider getting injured. Right. Okay. Yep. So do you know who this is, Wendy?
0: Um, yes, but um, <laughs> as you get older, recall of that many years ago decreases, okay? <laughs> magic, my old horse Thank magic. you magic. Who
1: has been in more experiments than any horse in the history of the world. So anyway, here, this is an experiment where we put one of those little pressure mats under the front of the nose, so under the nose band. We actually had another one up on top of the pole. I'll get to that later. Um, But we were measuring where was the pressure applied on the horse's face by a tight nose band. And you, the areas that get the most pressure are right at the edges of the nasal bone. So you have the nasal bone that comes across and then there's, it goes around the corner and sort of drops away. And it's right on the corner on that edge where we get the highest pressure. And then also under the horse's mandibles, which I'm indicating here and here. right? So on the edge of the nasal bones, this is just a a section cut through a horse's head. This is his nasal cavity here and here. That's his tongue inside his mouth. There's his palate, and the upper cheek teeth, lower cheek teeth. Um, oh, and you can see quite nicely here how the tongue goes down and sort of attaches in between the two mandibles to like the floor of the mouth kind of cool. Anyway, that's where most of the pressure is applied. And then the other thing is that, and this represents the comparison between a nose noseband and a drop noseband, if you're using a cavison and it could be a cavison with, let's say, a flash attached to it, um, but it can put pressure on the flabby cheek tissue that is between the nose band and the teeth, and it can actually squeeze that cheek tissue in between the horse's teeth. And if he has some sharp enamel points there, then it's very easy to get ulcers. You can see one here and another one here. And you know, a lot of horses have those ulcers. Even horses that are not being ridden Rude mares that are just out on pasture will have some of these ulcers. So we you know, have to think that horses accidentally bite their cheek or their tongue maybe the same way that we sometimes do. It's not necessarily related to the bit, but it can be. And especially if you have a really tight cavesson noseband, it can squeeze the cheeks in there. There's nowhere else for them to go. And then you'll see this. Now discolored saliva, pink, and that gets you eliminated right away. Yep.
0: I, so I think my cheek the other day really all are... by accident, by a misstep in my jaw. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's like, so it's very possible to do. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's one of the things that you know, high, high level riders especially need to be aware that if they're tightening their nose band up to try and keep the horse's mouth closed, they are increasing the risk of getting disqualified for having blood in the horse's mouth. So it's counterproductive. Can be counterproductive, yes. Now, here's the actual data from that study um, I showed you with magic with the... Oh, yeah. We're looking at the pressure on the nose and we're also looking at the pressure on top of his pole and in these graphs this is the actually the maximum force and we're looking at the walk on the left the trot and the canter and this is these three are pressure on the nose and then doing that these three are pressure on the pole And the thing to note, that the yellow is what I would call normal noseband. That's how I adjust the noseband. And then in these these studies, the horse was ridden. So these are, you know, real ridden studies. And the normal noseband in yellow is always the lowest amount of um, force, but it gets a little bit higher in trot and canter than it is in walk. Now, for the tight noseband, which is in pink, we can see that the pressure on the nose is considerably higher, a lot higher, than it is for the noseband that's just very slightly loose. But then, this is the cross-under bitless bridle, and it has way higher pressure on the nose than even a tight noseband. And I don't say this because I'm opposed to the use of bitless bridles. Um, I think there are times when people have to use them if their horse has a tongue injury or something. And sometimes people just prefer to ride bitless, and all that is fine. But don't assume that a bitless bridle is entirely pressure free. As we can see here, both on the nose, these three, and the pressure on the horse's pole is way higher with the cross-under bitless bridle than it is with a tight. Yeah, you, know, you know,
0: you've you've just reinforced. I've always thought that the crossover bitless bridles. My my point was that once you pull it tight, the horse is not going to open his jaw to loosen it. It's going to stay tight. And mm-hmm. I did not know about this data, but this this is. Really important data because so many people think that using a bitless bridle is kinder to their horse because it doesn't have the bit. But what you're showing us is it has hugely increased pressures on other parts of the horse's head. And um, I think this is really important data. One of the questions I have, and, and you may or may not be able to answer it is, there are other types of bitless bridles. I actually personally prefer what's called a side pull, which has a fixed nose piece and rings on the side so that yeah. you don't have that crossover. And right. so, um, but the crossover-
1: yeah. so what that crossover does is that it actually doubles the amount of pressure. Wow. Right, because you've got left rein plus right rein putting pressure on together. Whereas with your side pull, it, it doesn't work that way. You don't have it sort of squeezing the horse's head in a vice. And so a bozelle or a
0: hackamore in the Western world, because it's a fixed shape, you're not gonna have the the pressures that you have. With the, it's gonna be more like a side pole. In other words, yeah. it's not gonna Yes, happen. I
1: mean, it won't put pressure on the nose, but it won't have this uh, sort of leverage effect. Right. Wow. And again, you know, I'm not um, saying don't ever use it, but do be aware that there is pressure even without a bit.
0: Well, and I think this brings up the point that, you know, you have, to, you have to work the thing all the way through. Just saying that getting rid of the bit is going to make it better for the horse without looking at, as you say, the weight and the pressure. They've got to go somewhere. You have some kind of control over your horse's head with any piece of equipment other than no bridle. Um, mm-hmm. And so we have to be educated in terms of understanding what each piece of equipment that we're using, what its what its purpose is, what its pros are, and what we have to be pay attention to if improperly adjusted.
1: There you go. Said that very well. Thanks. We have another are there any question questions about the bitless.
0: Uh, well we have a question is what is creating the variation between the gates is it just that the rider is having an increasingly strong contact with each faster gate if so that seems avoidable
1: yeah what happens in the gates the walk has no suspension so the the tension in the reins is fairly consistent throughout the walk stride now when we go to the trot and the counter we have have gates that have a suspension, so the horse is bouncing off the ground, coming back down onto the ground. The horse's whole body goes up in the suspension and comes down, let's take the trot as an example, in the diagonal stance phase. We've got the front and the rear legs supporting the horse's body, and the body sinks to its lowest point in the middle of diagonal stance and then starts to bounce up into the next Suspension. So, the front limbs are controlling the height of the withers and the height of the base of the horse's neck. But then the head and neck are cantilevered out in front of the horse's body. So when we stop the base of the neck, the top of the neck, the pole and the head actually nod down a little bit and then come up again, right? So we stop the base, nods down a little bit, the muscles on top of the neck actually control the downward movement and then the nuchal ligament and the muscles sort of bounce it back up again. And we're we're only talking, you know, a centimeter or so of movement. But that's enough that if the rider has a contact on the, the horse's mouth and keeps their hand very steady, then the horse nods down into the bit and the pressure increases. It's like a spike. So for every complete stride of trot, there are two diagonal stance phases. and We see two spikes in rain tension. So when we look at the total force, this is actually representing the force in those spikes.
0: And so that's, um, having contact, and it's not a question of strong contact, it's just a question of contact, there's going to be a bit of a spike. Obviously, if we were holding on really tightly, we might see an inc- a higher force than if we had a light contact, but there's just the nature of the gait is going to create those.
1: Yes, it's the mechanical movement of the horse that creates the spikes. And And the the part that the horse and rider decide on as their sort of basic rein tension is actually the low value. And then the mechanics create the high value and it comes back to your baseline connection with the horse's mouth. And so I, I know we're not talking
0: Western world necessarily, but say we have a horse in a bridle with the heavy rope reins and the slobber straps, which has a fair amount of weight, even if there's a sort of a loop in the reins, you're still going to have a bit of a spike because the movement of the horse is going to be moving that there's going to be
1: momentum to the equipment itself. You get it, Wendy. <laughs> I actually I did that study. I, I didn't use big, heavy reins. I just used ordinary long leather reins with loops in them and put strain gauges in each rein. And yeah, it, it's... Small amount, but it goes up and down with every diagonal movement. Right. So yes, well done. Thank you. Well,
0: I think about this all the time because I see people go, well, I have a loop in my reins, but I'm thinking, well, wait a second, you have weight and momentum, especially in a rope, the heaviness. And so you're still creating a force and it's still going to exert actually up on the pole as well, because that's where it's all going is to the pole over the crown. Right.
1: So one way to think of having a contact is that you're taking that slack out of the reins so you're not getting the rein bouncing. But the other thing that it gives you, it's like a car that has too much play in the steering wheel and you have to, to turn it before it starts to turn the car. Well, if you've already got a contact, then the horse is there and even the tiniest little movements of your fingers are going to be transmitted to the horse's mouth rather than having to you know, take up a, a little bit of slack and get a contact and it you know, doesn't work. Got it, thank you. So how tight should the nose band be? Somewhere, sometime, someone said you should be able to get two fingers underneath it. But we don't seem to be able to find where they said to put the fingers or <laughs> how to orient them. And I'm showing these pictures because I don't ever want anybody to do this with their fingers. If you put your fingers under the nose band at the the front like this, and the horse decides to open his mouth or fling his head in the air, your fingers get totally trapped between the nose band and the horse's nasal bone. You can break your fingers, you can have your fingers torn off. So do not do this with your fingers, okay? so to get around this issue um well we still don't know where is the best place to measure it but the international society for equitation science developed this little gauge and if you look at the picture on the left you can see that it's marked. um like two fingers, one and a half fingers, one finger. They actually measured a whole lot of people's fingers, men and women, fat fingers, thin fingers, and came up with an average finger size uh, and made the gauge. And it's designed to just slide in under the front of the nose band. And several countries are using this as their um, measurement. In Denmark, they have a slightly different tool, but the same sort of idea. In the US, we are worried about putting things under the middle of the nose band where they could you know, possibly get stuck. Um, you know, and you can imagine some multi-million dollar horse running around with this thing stuck up his nose band, that wouldn't be good. Uh, but also in this country, a lot of the people that are doing the tack checks are not extensively trained. So we've decided that, we're, that we use a different method and we put the fingers under the nose band but behind the cheek piece and we recommend to put fingers in from underneath. And then it is an area where there is loose, soft tissue, but if the horse did pull his head away, then your fingers slide out quite easily. So that's our gauge in the US. Well,
0: and from the front also, some of these horses are really tall and we have people, women that are short trying
1: to check them. Yeah. That would be difficult. Well, yes. And you know, you don't want to be standing in front of them for sure. Yeah. So we, we, again, we're trying to do things in a way that are safe for the horse and the rider and the person that's doing the check. So here are some different nose bands. How tight should the nose band be? Well, if we have the two on the left adjusted to the same tightness, then this little skinny one will have more pressure on the horse's nose than the wider nose band. So width of nose band is one thing to take into account. And then if we have one of these um, dressage nose bands with really heavy padding, both over the front of the nose and under the chin, then that's going to take up some of the pressure. And there's a thought in some areas that if you have the type of bridle that's shown here, it's called a, the note that noseband is sometimes called a crank, which I think is a name we really need to get away from. Mm-hmm. But it's called a crank, because you have the, the strap goes along and it loops through, and then it comes to the buckle and you tighten it. But you have um, loops where you've got leather on leather and there's a lot of friction there. It's not as if this is really easy to tighten, but it's been misinterpreted that this type of noseband is very easy to tighten and that's why people are using it because they can make it tighter. But, you know, for me, I use this type of noseband, but I use it because it has the nicest, Padding underneath it i don 't use it because I want to be able to crank it as tight as i can, so i I have this same noseband, and I love it because I find
0: it 's way easier for me to properly adjust and buckle, whereas the the single the nose bands on the left of the cavissons, I just find that it 's not as easy, and this one it 's never tight, but it's it 's easy for my
1: hand yeah it holds it it holds the pieces in the right orientation The the other ones on the left, the leather, if you look after it well, it gets all loose and floppy and it, yep. it holds its shape yep. as well.
0: And it has this nice padding for the jaw where you showed that yeah. we had an increase of pressure on the mandible. Well, this is going to put some padding there where we don't want to have pressure.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, I think there's been a misinterpretation as to why the majority of people choose that nose band, let's say. Um, This bridle on the right, this is the Fairfax one again, that has the little foamy blocks up here. It also has an interesting um, nose relief system. It has one of those foamy blocks that goes right over the nasal bones. And then at the side where the edge of the nasal bone is, it completely unloads all the pressure. You see how that works? Yeah. And then no pressure at all. Um, right, right so it's going to be on the
0: wider part of the bone and then alleviate where you get the little corners.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's another you know, sort of simple but quite clever adjustment that they've made. Okay, we had a question about the Micklem. Here's the Micklem bridle. I think this is pure genius, actually. Um, you can't really see it here. but it, it is shaped around the ear. It has a single... Cheek piece that goes the bit attaches onto here by a, an adjustable little strap. The nose band is lower than the cavison nose band, but it avoids the facial crest, and this is the infraorbital foramen here, it avoids those structures. And then it has the you know strap for the drop nose band that goes in the chin groove. Now, one of the things about a normal drop nose band, is that it's very hard to find one that fits properly. Most of them are way too long across the front, and they end up, you know, somewhere over the horse's teeth, and a little short back strap. But this one is a nice short front strap, and a relatively long back strap. It's super easy to adjust and fit. Um, It doesn't put any pressure over the side of the cheek, where it tends to get bitten by the cheek teeth, and it's really light in weight, partly because it only has a single strap here. So I think this is a really clever design of a bridle. So so Hilary, could we make it even a little better if we
0: had that little pad over the, the nose? Because as you see where the drop is, it's going to pull down a little bit onto the corners yeah. of the nasal bones, right? That's
1: true. That might be even an improvement on it. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Because this... Then-
1: is not heavily padded, right? But it's so light that you know you you hardly need a lot of padding. But that oh, and thing- it's so quick and easy to clean it too. Oh, <laughs> that's
0: always important, right? But it brings yeah. me to another point that when we have a a nose band separate from our crown piece, we have the two straps going over behind the horse's ears. Yeah. And they could they be doing different degrees of pressure? In other words, we might think that the crown piece is okay, but that the noseband is actually putting more pressure than we thought. And it's a, usually a narrower strap.
1: Yes. And again, you're exactly right. Um, and that's one of the reasons that a lot of bridles have gone away from that sort of design. And they'll, even if they have a separate strap from the noseband, it'll come off from the. Crown piece separately, or some of them it runs through the crown piece, so the padding in the crown piece has the noseband strap as well. Yep, I've seen those, yep. And some of them actually lie right on top of the crown piece. So you had a question about the Micklem at one point.
0: Uh, Yes, let me see if I can go back and find it. Um, Let's see, I can just scroll back up here, I think it was here. Um, But in the meantime, while I'm looking for that question, isn't it the UK from the last Olympics that did so much of the research on um, looking at pressures the bridles were making on the horse's heads? Didn't they do a fair amount of Yes, and that's
1: the research I was talking about that led to the development of that Fairfax bridle. And they also looked at the girth and how that um, put pressure behind the horse's elbow and, you know, used a, a cut-out girth to improve that.
0: So we do have one question while I'm looking for the other, is, is how wide can a horse open his mouth in a micklam? Well, that depends on how tightly- Oh, that is the question. Just this yeah. strap, yeah. So again, it comes down to the adjustment, not the bridle itself.
1: Yes. Yes, and on all of the bridles, you know, you have whatever goes under the horse's chin is adjustable.
0: Right. So, you know, her sort of kind of continual continuation on this thinking about the tongue relief really for swallowing. Um, but it's really, it's really in the adjustment as opposed to in the piece of equipment.
1: Very often, most of the time. Yeah. Well, if you found your Michlum question, you can ask if it.
0: That, actually, that was it.
1: Oh, that was it. Okay.
0: Yep, I did find it.
1: So here are some of the New anatomical bridles. For reference, I put the Miklum up at the top left corner, and I've got several of the um, PS bridles, the Chakamola. But the the point is not dissecting each bridle individually, but look at how they're really all like a variation of the Mm Miklum. If you take this one, it's really easy to see. It has a separate strap for the noseband part, but very similar structure. So, you know, I think it's a matter of aesthetics partly. Um, which bridle suits your horse's head? Do you want a sort of nicely curved noseband like this one, or a more angular look like this one? Do um, you want a separate hanger for the noseband? Do you want a jowl strap? Do you want a throat latch? It's up to you. Um, The one that's not allowed in dressage is this PS high jump, and it's not allowed because it has metal in this piece here, and it also has a little metal clip. You're allowed to have a metal clip holding the the cheek piece onto the bit, but not in other parts of the bridle. Mm. But we also have this, this is the collegiate comfort that is to all intents and purposes Looks just like this one, but doesn't have the metal.
0: So it seems like everyone's kind of heading in the
1: same direction and
0: following Michlum's lead.
1: Well, yes. But you know, it's such a good lead because it does all the things that we want an anatomical bridle to do. Right. Okay, that's the end of the bridal bit. Any more questions on bridles? Oh my gosh, we've gone on far too long. it's been great it's okay i don't even know what time it is you want to do the bits or leave it for another day or what
0: um well we promised bridles and bits okay (laughs) are there any questions though from the other part that we need to um just one more it says the miklam also has a loop to use as a lunging cavison but not the greatest quality leather so i guess did, have you seen it used as a London cabison and how do you feel about that?
1: No, I haven't seen that. I didn't realize that. And the the Miklum I have, I think the leather is is quite nice in the just the ordinary bridle. It's not fancy or anything, but it it to me it's it's actually beautifully made. Okay. It's a lot of uh, yeah, was,
0: there may be several models, and I and that's probably true.
1: Okay, so sorry, I don't know that. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Onward. <laughs> so when we think about bitting, we're going to consider the width of the bit, which is the width from one corner of the horse's lips to the other. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. We're going to consider the thickness of the bit, how fat it is, and we can also look at the diameter of the ring, rings. And if we have a curb type bit, then we'll have an upper cheek or an upper shank and a lower cheek or a lower shank. So the snaffle bit is defined by being a non-leverage bit. So the rein attaches to the same ring or at the same level as the mouthpiece. And both the rein and the cheek piece rotate freely around the same ring with the exception of this one, the hanging cheek or the boche bit. So this one has the rein on this ring and the cheek piece on this ring. The mouthpiece might be straight, might have a single joint. I'm not sure
0: why your, your pointer jumps your screen. I wish I could I don't know.
1: It's when I'm touching my um, pad. Oh little, anyway, Um, or it can have a double joint. So here's a horse's jaw on the left and these are his cheek teeth. Here are the canine teeth on each side and these are the incisor teeth. So this is the length of the bars of the horse's mouth, but Don't just notice the length. Notice how this area is curved. And the place where the bit fits, you can see on this X-ray, is more or less at the narrowest part of that curve. And that means that the part of the bit that crosses over the bone of the horse's jaw is not this bit at the edge. It's actually more like about here which I think is not how we imagine it is. You can also see here the joint in the middle of the bit. So, here's a double jointed bit. This is the KK, KK Ultra, and the KK bits have on one side of the mouthpiece, they have a little arrow, and that little arrow is supposed to fit on the left side of the horse's mouth. Now, in order to understand why, we have to look at how, these are the cannons on the bit, pull these, how the cannons articulate with the little central piece. So if we put the bit in with this arrow on the left of the horse's mouth, then it lies over the bars of the mouth with these parts on the cannons that are flat against the horse's bars. And if we put the bit in the opposite way around with the um, little arrow on the right side, then it turns these cannons by 90 degrees so that the part that's lying flat in the picture on the left is actually perpendicular to the bars. So that would be, as far as the horse is concerned, um, a more severe effect. So that's the thing with this little arrow on the KK. It helps the bit to lie in a comfortable position. The other thing I want you to note here is this is quite a small little lozenge in the middle. And it's just about the exact size of the distance between the um, jaw bones on the left and right sides. Right? So it's really only that much distance between the jaw bones at their narrow point. So if we're, the practical thing there is that if you're having a double jointed bit, then the piece in the middle needs to be really short.
0: That, that's fascinating. I, you know, I, I, that's the bit that I have for my horse because it's what he picked. Um, he had a choice. And, mm-hmm. but it's so amazing to see how narrow the jaw is at that point that it's only the width of that lozenge. Yep. It's just, wow, great illustration.
1: Uh, We do allow the snaffle bit to be shaped to allow tongue relief. And these are the dimensions that we allow. So the width at the lowest point of the elevation has to be at least 30 millimeters, three centimeters. That's a minimum. And the height, from the lowest point on the cannons, and if the cannons are shaped, it's still the lowest point like this, to the top side of the elevation. That's a maximum of 30 millimeters, three centimeters.
0: What's the average width on the horse's jaw at that point? What's the average what? Width of the horse's jaw, in the, like in the x-rays we saw on the previous slide, the, the distance between
1: the two sides of the jaw. Oh, um, in centimeters, about three, four, three. So this,
0: so these bits with this width would be coming down and kind of
1: angling onto then, the sides. Uh, yeah. But remember, we've got the horse's tongue. Oh, right, right. Forgot about the tongue. Yes. Don't forget the tongue. And the tongue is what really carries the weight of the bit. That's right. Um, thickness of the bit rules say a minimum of ten millimeters one centimeter, except in ponies. but um, the point I wanted to make was that years ago we used to see a lot of these really fat German snaffles, and we were told that those were the kindest bits because you know pressure, is a force per unit area, so there was less pressure with these bits. but it turns out when I did the research on on the bits that there isn't room in the horse's mouth for a great big fat bit like that most of the time. And the majority of horses actually prefer a thinner bit, right? something like that. Another thing you can see on here, if you have a single jointed bit, the joint is never exactly in the middle. Like that cannon is longer than this one. You see that? Mm-hmm. So that's another disadvantage to the single joint
0: and doesn't it also have a locking side versus a smooth because because of the design of the joint one yeah. side will lock and the other side will move
1: yes yes it's not a, a symmetrical design at all um okay width of the bit you can measure it with a little tool like this um this is something that uh, put out by New Shola. It's just a you know like a piece of card, and you can lay a bit across it, and then look at sort of the range of, of you know if you don't have if you've been measuring with doweling, whatever you can lay it across here, and it'll tell you if it's on the yellow say it's a certain width that is appropriate for that horse. So it's just something to help you. The actual bit should be no more than about half an inch wider than the distance between the corners of the lips. And here, this is what we talked about earlier on the left. When the bit is too narrow, it's sort of pulling the lips in, and the bit then falls away from the horse's cheeks, right? So just like we saw when the cheek pieces were too long. And then on the right, we've got a bit that's too wide. When the bit is too wide, and you'll see this a lot in racehorses, it can be pulled out of the mouth a whole long way, inch or so. Um, and that gives you a very sloppy sort of connection with the horse's mouth.
0: So it's kind of like Goldilocks.
1: <laughs> yes, and So yes, exactly. You know, it's amazing how many things, well, it doesn't matter whether it's confirmation or bit fit or what it is, that you can have too much of a good thing. Yep. Right. And you don't want too much. You don't want too little. You want just right. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, we talk a lot about the horse's hard palate. So the palate is really the roof of the mouth. And it's this area up here between the cheek teeth. And this particular horse here has quite a a marked curve to his palate. What I'm showing you on the left is um, people have taken that uh, dental impression stuff and pushed it up into a horse's palate and then taken it out and you're looking at Like the top surface here is what fits against these ridges here. So you can actually see the ridges. And this is two different horses, one with rather a flat palate. And I think you appreciate that there's not a lot of curve there versus a horse with a very arch palate. Um, And the thing about the, the shape of the palate is that a horse with a flat palate is a lot more difficult to fit with a bit. A horse with a good arch for the palate, and that can be a, you know one to two centimeters high, then they have more room for the joint and the middle part of the bit. And one of the things that I kind of gleaned from my research is that horses really don't like pressure on the palate. Those ridges that we see are soft tissue that covers the bone, and it's a very vascular soft tissue and Perhaps also very well innovated, but you know, even just the bone being right underneath there, I think, makes any pressure on the roof of the mouth. Um, And so, this is something people could actually feel with their own horse,
0: right? If they carefully anchored their thumb on the outside and came in where there's no
1: teeth and just kind of felt what the palate was like to get a sense. Hung out one side and have a look. The problem is, if you just look at your own horse, you don't have. A reference to mm. compare it with. Right. But it's a really good idea every time, you know, your, your vet comes and um, does a routine dental work to ask, well, it, does my horse have a flat palate or a more arched palate? And I ask all your questions to somebody that sees different horses' mouths on a daily basis. Right. So you have a reference point because it's really important
0: about, to understand the shape of your horse's mouth on the inside. Yeah.
1: Okay, So the skull on the right here is showing you the length of the bars as the canine teeth and these are the incisors. And then on the right, we're looking at an x-ray. This is a canine tooth and the incisors would be just right here. We sort of cut it off right at the incisors. And then the cheek teeth are this very white area back here.
0: Hilary, I'm just going to rescue my cat
1: from the UPS truck. Keep going. Uh Uh, (laughs) Uh-oh. The bit looks very white because it's metallic. And this one is a single-jointed snaffle. And you can see these things like little mouse ears that sort of poke forward into the horse's palate. And that's one of the issues with a single-jointed bit. It's not just where the bit lies when everything's quiet. But when there's tension on the reins, then the bit tends to push forward into the palate. And that's what we mean by a nutcracker effect. Hello, Kitty. Almost went into the UPS truck, was definitely looking into the door. (laughs) Curiosity. (laughs) So when we think about different bit shapes relative to what goes on in the horse's mouth, So if we just look at the basic oral cavity shape, this is the palate up here. And then here's the horse's tongue, which actually fills the horse's mouth. And that's why they they don't have room for those big fat bits because the the tongue is already there. But if we put in a single jointed bit, and that's not a single jointed bit, uh, then it forms like a V-shape on top of the tongue whereas the double jointed bit forms more of a kind of U shape which conforms be-
0: uh oh you froze hilary you froze
1: uh
0: oh what happened
1: better to the actual shape in fix
0: it wendy well, I, I didn't know what happened. You just froze for a minute. Well, am just, I all right now? Am I back? Yeah, you're back. I was like, last time Bob froze, he disappeared for good. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I disappear for good, it's been fun, guys. <laughs> no, this is really interesting. I don't want you to disappear. Um, so
1: where did I leave off? Where did I go? Um,
0: you were talking about the single joint, it forms more like a TP, which is going to put pressure up into the palate. and then
1: was yep. it this slide. Yes. Yep. All right. So the double jointed bit is more like a U shape with this flat bit in the middle, but that conforms a lot better to the shape of the horse's mouth and, and his tongue. And then we can go to, here's a double jointed bit that actually has shaped cannons. So it sits even more kind of conforming to the shape of the horse's mouth. But, you know, it, it's a matter of trying all these different things. Horses will tell you pretty quickly whether they like it or not, and not every horse likes every bit.
0: Yeah, and, and again, going to the Western world, their standard bit is a single-dent snaffle. I'd be curious to see if they went to more of a shaped mouthpiece, how that would, it wouldn't alter the fact that they're in a snaffle, but I wonder if that would uh, um, be more comfortable for a lot
1: of these horses. Yeah, well, might well be. Um, this is one of the newer modifications. This one's from New Shola. This is the turtle top. And it's just a little different from the um, oval lozenge in that this piece on top is sort of flattened. Right, so it's even lower relative to the palate, And it's called turtle top. It has this little turtle on it. Here's his head. Here's his shell. These are his legs. And the way you put it in, is with the horse's head and shell going upwards on the horse's tongue. So I do think some of the resistances we see in horses are because they don't like pressure on the palate. If the horse does like the one on the left and opens his mouth, then the mandible, the tongue, the bit, everything moves away from the palate. You know, that's one resistance that might actually, you know, be a a valid thing. And before you automatically tighten up the noseband to stop it, maybe try some different bits, try some other solutions. The next two pictures, the two in the middle, are showing snaffle bit. This one, there is no tension on the reins. And the joint on the bit, is kind of digging into the, the palate here. Here, there's, pre- there's tension in the reins and it's pulled the entire bit away from the horse's palate. So if you have a single jointed bit, rein tension tends to push the joint up into the um, palate, but with a double jointed bit, rein tension pulls the whole bit away from the palate. And I would sometimes wonder if some horses that give you a very strong brain tension actually prefer that because it pulls the bit away from their palate. I have no proof for that. It's just something that crossed my mind one day. And then the picture on the right is really interesting. This is something I saw on my video x-rays that I didn't know actually existed. But this horse has taken his tongue, which normally lies sort of down here, he's pulled his tongue back, sucked it back, and then pushed the middle part of his tongue. This is not the tip of his tongue. This is actually the middle part of his tongue in between the bit and the palate. That's not the same thing as when the horse gets his tongue completely over the bit. He's just forming like a little pillow, if you like, Mm -hmm. between the bit and the palate. We saw. I saw that in more than one horse. You know, if I'd only seen it in one horse, I would have thought it was peculiar to that horse. But I've seen it in you know several horses now, so I think maybe it's a learned behavior to take pressure off the palate.
0: So they're they're making their own little cushion to protect their palate from the yes. bit. Isn't that clever? Yeah, that's pretty impressive.
1: Now, double bridle. And, you know, when people ask me about problems in fitting bits, the most common is the horse that can't carry a double bridle. It's the most difficult to fix. And I think sometimes there isn't a solution to it. And, you know, for a long time, I was an advocate of allowing horses to compete all through the FEI levels with a snaffle. You know, my logic being we wanted to breed horses that, do good dressage, not horses that have a big mouth. Um, and now, under national rules in a lot of countries, that is allowed, but not under FEI rules yet. Um, so, what happens with the double bridle is that we combine two bits: we have a non-leverage bradoon bit and a leverage curb bit. The bradoon for the double bridle. And it's the, the snaffle. The bradoon is just the snaffle part of the double. It can have one or two joints. You can't have a bar snaffle. And it can have a loose ring or an egg butt ring. We're no longer allowed to use a hanging cheek snaffle. We lost that this year. Um, and that was to keep us in line with the FEI rules. And the bradoon has to have a minimum diameter of 10 millimeters, one centimeter. So the leverage with the curb bit comes from the fact that the rein is attached below the mouthpiece and the cheek piece is attached above the mouthpiece. So if this is the normal position with no tension on the reins and here we put tension on the curb bit, you can see that the lower shank, the lower curb, moves backwards, and the rein attachment the sorry the cheekpiece attachment moves forward, and as it moves forward, it puts just a little pressure on the cheekpiece and a little pressure on the horse's pole so this is meant to show again that the the bits are sort of acting in different ways. We've got the curved bit here. When you put tension on the rein, it angles the shank, moves the top of the shank forward, and that can then slightly increase the pressure on the um, crown piece. But also, when you put tension on the bradoon rein, that pulls the bradoon cheek piece back. And that can actually also put a little bit of pressure on the crown piece. The other thing you might notice is that must be somewhere that I put my finger on this.
0: Yeah.
1: Anyway, um, it is possible for this uh, cheek piece that goes to the curb bit to actually pull the whole thing a little bit forward against the horse's ears. So just you know, one more thing to be aware of. A um, little bit of advice here for introducing the double bridle, especially if you've never ridden in one before. You can take one of these bits, and this one happens to be the Neuschule Transangled, um, but there are, you know, other types that have these separate rings at the side. Um, and if you attach reins to the two lower rings and put your cheekpiece on the top ring, then you can actually practice the feel of riding with two rings. And you can even you know, put on a little strap here, leather strap that simulates having a curb chain. Okay, So you know, just a way to get started um, practicing the individual use of the two rings.
0: And for the rider, that's awesome because rain handling to go from a snaffle to a double and not kind of be used to handling two reins. This is a great suggestion on, on just the rider getting their chops down.
1: Yeah. And it, it actually does have the same sort of effect because the top rein is a non-leverage, leverage rain, and the lower one does have a tiny bit of leverage. So it's, you know, it makes you feel pretty well. Yeah. Another thing um, people sometimes don't realize is that when the bits are in the horse's mouth, the bradoon bit actually sits in front of the curb bit, like the picture on the right. So the horse
0: bit is pointing to the
1: right? I'm just a little
0: unclear on it.
1: Oh, the picture on the left, you mean? Yeah. In this picture, that is the horse's cheek. Oh. And the front of his face is here. Oops. Um, and this is the snaffle ring and here's the shank of the curb the actual snaffle bridle mouthpiece is right here
0: oh okay and that's the curb chain that we're seeing coming that's down. the
1: curb chain there's a little ring for the lip thing um, and there's the mouthpiece of the curb bit Oh, wow. Yes, the, the bradoon sits on top and sometimes down in front of the curb. Great picture. I said some horses are difficult to fit and it really is sort of trial and error trying different bradoons, different curbs, move one up, move one down, move the other up, move the other down and try to find a comfortable position for them. One of the bits that's been developed is this one, the turtle tilt Weymouth. And the way it's supposed to fit on the tongue is that the curve actually goes down. It sort of curves down on the horse's tongue. And then the turtle top bradoon fits on top, and they're not supposed to interfere with each other. So. something else that you can try but it's not for every horse.
0: It's so interesting to look at the picture on the right with the tongue and the bits because you know in the western world they the bridle horse goes in what's called a spade bit and you can almost see the combination of these two bits into one mouthpiece which would start to create some of the western bits that we see for the finished horses.
1: Yeah yeah. Okay, short smile, this is a difficult problem. So horses lips are supposed to go about this far up the side of their face. If you get a horse with this tiny little mouth and its lips don't go very far, that is a bit fitting nightmare. Um, The bits that tend to be most comfortable for these horses are thin bits and bits that are angled upwards or sort of backwards so that it, it, takes the mouthpiece of the bit higher in the horse's mouth. And this is just an example of a curb that, you know, sort of curves upwards. That's the type of curb you would want to put into a horse with the short smile.
0: So we do have a question about the curb chain and the function of the curb chain in your your, uh, double. In other words, there's what's the, why do you have the curb chain and how should it be adjusted?
1: Okay, so the curb is supposed to be a a leverage bit, but the fulcrum, which is the mouthpiece, the part that's in the horse's mouth, is not in a static position. So the horse can move that bit around, it can move the fulcrum. What the curb chain is helping to do is stabilize the position, of uh, the fulcrum in the horse's mouth. That make a bit of sense? Mm-hmm.
0: In other words, a fulcrum being like on a seesaw, it's the pivot point. And if that's shifting around, you're constantly changing your leverage. You're making, it's like making your seesaw long on one side and short on the other and shifting it back and forth. Yes,
1: yes. So it, it keeps the bit in a more constant position. Um, as you get more tension on the reins, the curb chain gets tighter in the chin groove. So you don't want to start off with it tight. Um, but if it's too loose, then it's not going to do its job of you know, holding the bit steady. Um, and I don't have a rule for how tight it should be. I mean, to me, you should be able to get at least one finger in between the curb chain and the horse's chin.
0: So is there an angle to the bit at which point the chain should engage?
1: Uh, Around 45 degrees.
0: So if you're taking back on your reins and the bits coming back.
1: Yes, it should. Yeah. Because otherwise,
0: you're going to be like way up here with the the rain going vertically at the back of the bit just before it ever engages. It's like the locks thing again.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so it is an integral part of the whole system. And, you know, there are different curb chains. There are some with the small links, there are some with big links. You're allowed to have it covered in rubber or leather um, to make it a little bit softer for the horse in his chin groove. And all the
0: Western leverage bits have a chain. I mean, because it's working on leverage, it's the same principle.
1: Yeah. There you go. So when I started doing research on bits, I thought okay, I'm going to do all this research and I'll be able to look at a horse and say, aha, yep, you need such and such a bit. It didn't work like that. It turns out bitting is it's a little bit scientific, but it's uh, just as much art as it is science. So I used to say to people, well, find yourself a, a friend, a trainer who has a big bit box and try lots of bits. And that's fine. But, you know, now we have tax stores that are offering the So the rent-a-bit program where you get a bit and try it for a week or two. And if it's not right, you can send it back. Or if it's good, you can buy it. But the other thing that we have is proper licensed bit fitters. There's an academy in Europe where you can become a licensed bit fitter. And they have a large range of bits in a large range of sizes that they can come out try all these bits on your horse and not just try them and get your opinion as to how you think it is but they also can give you a professional opinion as to how the horse is performing in that bit so i think you know that's a, a really nice advance in bitting
0: well and i think it fits with what you were saying about asking your your uh, dentist to look at your horse's palate. When, you, when you've seen a huge range of horses, you have a much better idea of how it's working for an individual rather than a very narrow range where you've only seen two yeah. or three bits.
1: Yeah, consult the experts. That's what they're there for. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the talk. That's awesome. Oops. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that's
0: a great picture because I just had to let mine out my cat out the door again all right um, just unshare your screen and we'll wrap this up and um, you know once again it's it's such a pleasure to listen to you Hillary because I think you take some very what seems difficult concepts like understanding a double and breaking it down into something that is something we can easily understand and get a sense of, of what the whys and hows and then what to look for with our own horses. So it's it's been great.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, because That's always my goal to have people understand, like you say, the hows and whys so that you can make decisions based on knowledge. Right. And that's where our horses
0: benefit is when we have the information, we can make wise choices. And when we know what to look for, um, I don't know if there's any more questions out there for Dr. Clayton. If you have a uh, one last question, just pop it in the chat. Seems like you've done a really good job, Hillary, because there's, there actually haven't been that many questions. And I always think that that's when a presenter... Well That
1: doesn't mean everybody's asleep. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we've had quite a number of people watching between Facebook and the webinar. So um, this, and I want to thank you so much, Hillary. I know this is, takes a chunk out of your day, and I really appreciate you. Sh- you spending the time with us and sharing your knowledge and information. You're welcome. Really awesome. And of course um, I love your garden and we both had garden scenes today. So this is my yard. I saw Dr. Clayton's garden originally when it was just hardscaped and I have to come up sometime hopefully and see it now because it's gorgeous. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, where thank I'm going you. now? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Just remember to subscribe to the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel so you get notified every time we put up another webinar. This and all the webinars have been recorded and are available for you to watch at your leisure anytime on Surefoot Equine. So um, tomorrow, uh, I'm going to be talking with Debbie Potts. We're going to talk about Surefoot on the West Coast and what it is to be a, a practitioner for the Surefoot Equine Stability Program. And um, thank you all for joining us. Thank you again, Hillary. This has been great. So nice to see you. And uh, hey. we'll see you again in person sometime
1: soon. After yeah, meeting. sometime, we hope. Yeah. Okay, bye, everybody.
0: Bye.